0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAS site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or where are you go going to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, LeonGetler.com. I am Leon Getler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 24 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, July the 14th. First, I'll be talking to Scott McKinnell, the regional manager for Tenable, to talk about website security. And I'll be talking to EY economist Cheryl Murphy about the economic outlook for the new financial year. But first, let's talk to Scott McKinnell.
3: First question, Scott, what are the stats showing? in terms of an increase in cyber attacks?
2: So so two, two, two things. First, they're on the rise, so they're not being abated. That's the first thing. So I think it was 92% of organisations uh, surveyed by in a, in, a, in a recent survey that we did by Forrester came back and said there was 70% of, of their businesses had been impacted as a result of some cyber cyber criminal activity that resulted in a significant business loss. So, you know, that's one dimension. And the second one is it's highly profitable for criminals and they're becoming increasingly sophisticated. So they're probably the two go hand in hand.
3: Okay, and you say that the cyber criminals are making money
2: out of it. They are. So, um, you know, cybercrime has been on on the up and up and if you even revert back to potentially a couple of years ago and what, what their modus operandi was, was targeting individuals. And so they would, you know, try and solicit payments out of people or, you know, in more recent times, the threat of publishing um, information or data breaches and then or, or visa card numbers and things of like that. What it's evolved to now is ransomware. And that's, that's clearly they've, they've managed to monetize it and find, um, you know, this is a, this is a great you know, financial venture for them. And the way that they do that is really, um, again, probably twofold. One is uh, moving away from targeting potentially individuals and then targeting organizations around who have critical infrastructure. So you know, they've moved there from, from targeting individuals to targeting organizations and bringing organizations down, which, which clearly has a, a larger impact, not just financially, but actually it really brings things to it. To its- That's fascinating because that raises another issues. Is what particular
3: sectors and industries are vulnerable to cyber attacks?
2: Well, it, it, it's, it's about 11. So um, the government's now uh, moving towards legislating. There used to be four major critical infrastructures. So it used to be considered utilities and financial sector and things of that nature, but it's been expanded to 11. And I've, I know that's come about because of awareness about how reliant we are on multiple sectors and supply chains. For fundamental, you know, fundamental existence in our society. So you now have got um, food supply, you've got water, you've got electricity, you've got financial sector, you've got hospitals, healthcare, and anything where if you actually stop and pause for a moment and think, if these organisations and services are to halt, there's a major impact to society, and that's the new the new vector that. That cyber criminals are targeting and and people think, oh, it's unscrupulous and it's awful. I mean, you have to remind them, these are criminals, they don't operate like you and I do. So anything where they can create havoc and harm, and the larger the impact, the more likely they are to extort um, ransoms from people. And this is this is what's happening.
3: Based on that, you'd see say any sector could be quite vulnerable. I mean, uh, supermarkets, for example, come to mind. Correct.
2: Correct. Supply chain. So anywhere in the food supply chain. So what we've seen usually is primary, the primary or secondary aspect, where um, you know it's food production facilities, as opposed to if you have a, if you think about, I'll say food from a, from an agricultural perspective, you've got a multitude of farms and it's quite diversified, and, and trucks and trams and things of that nature. Once you have an aggregation point, either at a distribution depot or a meat production facility, there that's where they're concentrating it because they're highly automated lots of reliance on information technology, and, and very quickly you can cripple that a very critical, I'll call it not a choke point, but an aggregation point within a critical supply chain.
3: So what are the risks and the implications for business with this?
2: The risks are uh, you're going to find yourself, or organisations could find themselves in a situation where if they don't have some form of plan or, or a, a process or a policy, call it whatever you will, and they're brought to their knees, the first thing is, and, and, and I'm going to focus on ransomware because this is what's you know the, the issue of the day, is you find yourself being extorted and not being able to work, like literally not being able to function. And, and again, there are plenty of uh, examples in the public domain of you know, machine manufacturers, you know, producing facilities, meat producing, oil and gas, literally stop working. And then they're, the pro- they're faced with the prospect of, which is not a great prospect of, I, you know, this is the ransom that's that they're being demanded. Do they or don't they pay it? Because there's a general philosophy. In fact, it's moved beyond that. The government's very clear about not paying ransoms because it just perpetuates the issue. So now you, you're, you've got the situation where you're literally not, not functioning. This could be measured in millions of dollars a day, an hour, a minute, depending on, on, the, on the nature of it, which in of itself, trying to restore yourself back to uh, an operative state is the first dilemma. And then the second one is if we, or do we choose to pay the ransom? And if we do, does that actually improve our posture? So that's the risk that's posed to people being brought to their knees, which in of itself is not great. And then what path do you take to do restorative activity? And so we're very big advocates of the way the government is moving and the way that the, the trend is for, you know, the extortion around ransomware and releasing publicly identifiable information it's all about prevention you know and and the crazy thing is Leon is most of the exploits that these cyber criminals use have been out in the wild for ages and are easy to fix and remediate you know they're known exploits known vulnerabilities and the ability for organizations to put in controls and and multi-factor authentication has been around for years and years and years so it's not like these are necessarily super sophisticated attacks in most instances, people just get caught in the wild because they haven't done the basic hygiene properly. I
3: mean, that, that raises a question. I can see what the government's doing, but what can individual businesses do in terms of developing strategies and uh, plan Bs?
2: Um, one, one of the curious things is, um, and, you know, in a, in a survey we did you know, about 12 months ago was, um, and, and we've observed this in the market ourselves, the boards are very aware that they've got a, you know, they've got, you know, a cybersecurity risk. I think to talk to most people, the lay people now in, in commerce, they would understand that it's a, it's a major, major risk. So you've got the people at, at the, I'll call it the director's level and, and the highest echelons who understand the requirement for compliance and the implications of their services being taken offline at one end of the spectrum. And then at the very end of the, of the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, the very technical practitioners that understand all the risks at a technical level. And where there's, where we see issues um, is between the technical practitioners who understand what actually needs to be done and the very highest echelons of commercial people and directors that know something needs to be done. And then there's this mismatch in the middle of communication. And often when we go there, so is, okay, who's responsible operationally for you know, mitigating risks doing remediation, triaging, allocating funds, standing up a cyber maturity program. And there's this kind of swirling mess right now because historically people have seen it as being a technical issue in the domain of it. And they're only tasked with doing what they can. And so what people could probably do to answer your question is having a clear understanding lines of communication and setting up either a framework, a governance policy, having a an awareness throughout the organisation of this is a business risk now not a not an it issue or an it risk and treating it like you would with occupational safety and health or other major elements of people you know a risk of a business that that they generally have policies procedures educational awareness business continuity plans remediation plans and things like that and just and, and just do that so you know, i've given you a long-winded way but the issue is the disconnect between high-end and, and technical practitioners and people trying to push it as a, and, and treat it as an IT issue. Uh, what that would
3: suggest, wouldn't it, that you would actually need every organisation in those sectors would need specific people in charge of those risks and managing those risks?
2: Correct. Again, at different levels throughout the organisation, it, it wouldn't necessitate that people need to have a deep, sound knowledge of cyber because you know the way that a board member is going to look at cyber risk they're going to look at probability you know probability extent and everything as, as a risk number but as you cascade down the organization you are correct is somewhere in in that i'll call it you know line of command there needs to be a continuity of responsibility fit for purpose for what you know their expertise and competencies are and what they should be looking at and there's a big disconnect in that at the moment
3: which means you need a specific team actually to handle yeah
2: yeah like you know i will draw some parallels to people that do it like the business and the the financial community are quite across this and to a lesser extent critical infrastructure because they use about continuity of power and you know things going bang and thing but i'll 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 financial sector bit be, and because they're often the first movers and they understand risk financial risk apra you know they have a lot of compliance and governance so it's already in their dna this this philosophy of risk management and risk mitigation. And so they pivot really well. They stand up committees, they have boards, um, they have business continuity plans, they have well-funded programs of work, they have traffic light systems as it's being delivered, you, you know, and so on and such forth. So, you know, I can revert back to even six or seven years ago where where, where it really moved in the financial institute where cyber security risk used to be on a board agenda item I knew this for a fact that we used to be you know um, on the general risk risk um, committee as, a, as an item that was addressed maybe once a month and even as re, even as long ago as five years ago that changed and I spoke to the CISO of one of the major trading banks and they said it's now a item for the chairperson and it's a two-weekly cadence and the stakeholders have changed that's how seriously they took it. These are simple things that just need everyone just to be aware of.
3: Well, Scott, that's all very illuminating. And thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you.
0: And now let's talk to EY economist Sherelle Murphy.
3: Well, Sherelle, what's your outlook for the economy next year? The Commonwealth Bank and AMP are predicting a 50% chance that Australia will be in recession. What's your view?
1: I think there's a good chance that we're going to get pretty close if not in recession I gr- I do agree with that um, and the reason for that is because we have moved through a cycle where inflation has continued to persist at a, an uncomfortable level and the Reserve Bank is kind of having to work harder to pull it down. And of course, when, when it does that, it means that it has to slow the economy and by slowing the economy, it can tip it into recession. But having said that, I, it's by no means a, a clear scenario because the Reserve Bank doesn't necessarily want to tip it into, into recession. It certainly wants to slow things, but whether or not it actually contracts is another question. It's really hard, obviously, for the Reserve Bank to do that, to get it just right. And this is the kind of fine line that it talks about that it, has to, that it has to walk. So I think that the chances, I guess, are increasing that we go into recession, yes, but the RBA will be doing what it can to, to sort of hold us out of it.
3: Certainly the bond markets are pricing in three rate rises next year. I mean, most economists are saying two. What's your view about that?
1: Yeah, I think they've just pulled back to more like two, so two more 25 basis point rate hikes as of today, anyway. That can change, obviously. Um, so I I, I agree. I think there will be more rate hikes. I think two is quite realistic. The again, the reasons for that being that the inflation scenario is not behaving quite. Uh, as well as the RBA would have hoped. Many things are coming down in price or the price growth is slowing substantially. Things like fuel, uh, things like international shipping rates, things like freight and transport. These things are definitely becoming less of a problem. But... The domestically generated services inflation is where the problem could lie in the next 12 months. So, we sort of have to think about inflation in two different aspects, I think, at the moment. You know, the goods inflation, which was a real problem during COVID, is starting to fade. But that services inflation, which is really a reflection of people more than anything, because obviously services provided by people is coming through because there is the, that sort of upward pressure on wages.
3: It's interesting because I mean the inflation rate, the underlying inflation rate, according to the latest figures, which are coming down, but the underlying inflation rate is still six point one percent, which is yeah. still very, very high, and it we're a long way from two to three percent.
1: That's right, and even although you might get inflation kind of coming down, so in other words, the rate of price growth is less. It doesn't mean prices are coming down; it means the rate of price growth is less is it enough, you know, and, and, At the moment, it's not. And the Reserve Bank is worried about underlying price growth of 6.1%. There's no doubt about that. Now, if everything goes to plan, the rate hike's already put in place, plus some of the, I guess, those international factors will continue to put downward pressure on that. But there's a big difference between 6.1% and 3%, which is the top of the Reserve Bank's target band. So, you know, it's, it's still to be seen whether or not we get there in a quick enough fashion.
3: Yes, I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary because the problem with inflation is it's just so sticky.
1: Yes, yes. And when you think about this in your everyday life, it, it makes sense. So you think about... The builders who've obviously benefited from a lot of demand of late as people wanted to renovate or build new homes, they've obviously had some increase in their input costs as well. When they look in the next 12 months, I can't imagine there's too many of them saying, we'll actually put our prices down. Now, they may not be rising quickly, uh, you know, at 20% a year, but do you know any builder that's putting their prices down? I certainly think in this environment where you've still got some Very strong demand for housing against a strongly growing population and not enough supply, it doesn't seem to me like we're going to see prices coming down in that construction sector. So that's just one example, but that is the kind of example of why inflation can be sticky on the downside.
3: And the other issue is wages growth.
1: Yes. And as we look at the new enterprise bargaining agreements as they are coming or um, being negotiated, they're certainly running at a much faster pace than existing agreements. Number of reasons for that. Obviously, there is some catch-up. You know, enterprise agreements are only negotiated every so often. You know, there's sometimes multi-year gaps in between. Um, and so there is a, I guess a feed in of, of what's been happening with inflation to that. Plus, of course, we have a strong labour market and employees are in a better position to bid up wages. And so, and then we've got kind of government uh, changes, which have uh, enabled wages to go up further. Things like the aged care um, agreements, of course, that has uh, pushed up wages as well. So there are a number of things, again, pushing wages on to the upside. And again, I don't see too many things pushing wages on the other direction. Uh,
3: The interesting part is that in in the US inflation Earlier on was something like nine percent and yeah. it's come down, and I think a lot of that, this is my personal theory, is that the Fed has actually aggressively raised rates. And so inflation has come down to I mean it's something like four percent now in the US. Yeah. The question is, the RBA only started raising rates last
1: year. As did most central banks, mind you. That's, that's right, not, right. not uncommon. New Zealand was before us, but but most uh, we started last year. The question is, uh, did the RBA leave it too late? I think in a perfect world, the RBA would have gone sooner than it did, yes. Um, and in fact, I remember when the March quarter figures from the CPI came out last year, It was very conclusive evidence that we had an inflation problem that was building very quickly. And had they preempted that, then they would have gone sooner than they did. It's difficult to compare us on a sort of just a policy rate basis with other countries because our policy rate flows through the economy in in slightly different ways in different countries. So the fact that we have so many people on variable rate mortgages here in Australia means that we tend to feel it quicker and it's more impactful than it would be in the US where there are longer or more fixed rate mortgages. So, you know, it's not really a very good like for like comparison, that policy rate. Right? So we have to be careful when we think about that. And on that basis, Australia therefore doesn't need to go as high and as fast as many other countries, because that monetary policy sting is more powerful um, than it is in say the US. Right.
3: Okay. But I mean, the Commonwealth Bank is actually predicting.
1: I, I can't see that in the in this sort of, I guess, the, at least the sort of the beginning part of next year, because I do think that the inflation problem will not just kind of dissipate. It's not to say that rates will go dramatically higher, but I think it's more likely that the RBA puts in one or two more rate hikes and then pauses for a period of time to, to let that work. You know, if if we did get pushed into a recession and the economy quickly crumbled, of course they would start to put rates down again to start saving the economy from that. Um, as long as inflation, of course, wasn't still a problem, and it could be, you know, you just have to look at the the UK to get an example of that. But Clearly, the, the RBA is watching very closely what happens. So, its its number one mandate, of course, is to keep inflation under control. In this case, get it back down to two to three percent. But it's not kind of doing that in a super super fast hurry. Yeah, as we know, we got a pause in both April and July when uh, when it met when the board met. It does want to preserve the jobs that were put in place during COVID. And that's part of the consideration too. So I think the RBA is going to sort of go a little bit more softly from here. And hopefully that means that we're not in the scenario where there is you know, a recession which they quickly have to reverse course.
3: Right, okay. But uh, the issue too is that I mean the, the RBA will have a new governor and mm-hmm. the new governor will want to show their inflation fighting credentials. And I would imagine though that The stickiness of inflation means, as you say, I mean, it's not going to recede that quickly. So how long do you think we'll have this inflation problem for? Will this be till 2025?
1: Um, It it, it could be, yes. I mean, when we look at the international evidence and, you know, you've got to remember that a lot of the forces that cause inflation in the US, the UK, Europe, many countries, China probably is the one clear exception, are international forces. They are international shipping rates. They are international commodity prices, uh, international food prices. These things are all common. And so we do have to pay attention to what's happening in these economies. But, of course, the domestic scene is, is slightly different. But I wouldn't say that, unfortunately for us, the domestic scene is actually do- doing us any favours from an inflation point of view. I think, actually, it's quite the opposite, because we have some very tight markets and some, some pressure uh, on the upside on wages. That raises another interesting question. I've read stats
3: showing that there's, people are predicting a 65% chance that the US will go into recession. Mm. over the next year, and a 70% chance the UK will go into recession.
1: How will that affect Australia? Well, um, in the first instance, it means that the international demand obviously dissipates, and these economies, it doesn't matter how they just affect Australia, it matters how they affect the whole world, because, you know, clearly the world's very interlinked. So if their demand, for example, fell away dramatically, we would certainly feel that. We are a small open economy, our exports and our imports are about 20% of GDP. So we would feel it, you know, there would be that slowdown. There would also be a confidence effect. um, And we might see that quite quickly and directly through the financial markets. Prices of equities. We would also see the central banks of those countries probably move into tightening mode again, as long as inflation wasn't a big problem, more quickly, and that would affect uh, commodity. uh, Sorry, that would affect foreign exchange rates. You know, their um, currency, for example, may go down relative to ours. Ours may go up. That makes it harder for our exporters, and that can be a drag on growth. So there's a number of different channels, but generally, if the rest of the world is going into recession, it's not good news for us.
3: So uh, over the next 12 months, uh, we're going to have to have a lot of concerns to watch out for.
1: There certainly are a lot of things um, which are difficult, but I guess one of the the brighter news aspects at the moment is that we are getting towards the end of these rate hiking cycles. We think, you know, unless inflation sort of took off again, which seems pretty unlikely, at least we're coming to the end of that, which means that the kind of deliberate handbrake that the policymakers are putting on our economies is probably not gonna get much worse. So that becomes in itself a source of confidence for business as they look down the track the outlook becomes a bit more predictable. They don't have to price in higher interest rates into their um, into their forecasts. Um, and that may give them a little bit of confidence to um, to sort of see a, a clearer future. May not mean that they are ready to go out and you know invest billions of dollars, but it, it certainly takes away some uncertainty. And that is a problem.
3: Well, Sherelle, thank you very much for your time again. My pleasure. Thanks, thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Matter Platform's Twitter
0: rival Threads crossed 100 million sign-ups within five days of launch. CEO Mark Zuckerberg said on Monday, dethroning ChatGPT is the fastest-growing online platform to hit the milestone. Threads has been setting records for user growth since its launch on Wednesday, with celebrities, politicians and other newsmakers joining the platform that is seen by analysts as the first serious threat to the Elon Musk-owned microblotting app. That's mostly organic demand. And we haven't even turned on many promotions yet, Zuckerberg said in a Threads post announcing the milestone. The app's sprint to 100 million users was much speedier than that of OpenAI-owned ChatGPT, which became the fastest-growing consumer application in history in January, about two months after its launch, according to a UBS study. Twitter had nearly 240 million monetizable daily active users as of July last year, according to the company's last public disclosure before Musk's takeover, although data from web analytics companies indicates usage has dropped since then. Twitter's web traffic was down 11% from the year prior in the days after the threads launched, compared to the 4% it was down year over year as of June, according to SimilarWeb. Matthew Prince, CEO of internet infrastructure firm Cloudflare, shared a graph showing a similar trajectory in a tweet on Sunday and said Twitter's traffic was tanking. And China's economy teetered on the brink of deflation in June. Chinese core inflation, a figure that excludes energy and food costs, dropped to 0.4% from 0.6% the month before. Annual producer prices in the Asian superpower declined by 5.4% in June, which was the steepest drop since December 2015. This added to the calls for Beijing to launch a stronger stimulus package to sustain the country's sputtering post-COVID recovery increasing the risk of deflation in Australia's largest trade partner and piling pressure on Beijing to launch stronger economic stimulus. Factory gate prices fell at the fastest pace since 2016 as demand for consumer and manufactured products softened. Analysts expected the figures to lead China's central bank, the People's Bank of China, to reduce interest rates again, adding to a round of cuts last month that many believe Beijing will have to supplement with fiscal stimulus policies. China is still growing, the question is whether it will hit its target, said Heron Lin, economist at Moody Analytics. In terms of that recovery, it's still there, but the concern is it's slowing down. China is targeting gross domestic product growth of 5% this year as the economy emerges from draconian COVID-19 controls, but the recovery is proving fragile with property prices and exports falling. And the Australian Securities and Investments Commission data on insolvencies largely ignored in the period when record low interest rates dominated headlines, is now starting to reveal the true pain points for the nation's manufacturing sector. While much is written about advanced manufacturing and its exciting future, here in the present, the pragmatist has to deal with another surge in power prices from July 1st, tight labour markets and a fractured global supply chain. Manufacturing companies entering administration for the first time jumped 94% to 93 from 12 months earlier when 48 businesses had been tagged on ASIC registers as entering administration. Despite an increase in earnings for the manufacturing sector, up 7.3 billion, 17.8%, according to the latest Australian industry report from the the Bureau of Statistics, pressure on margins is clearly evident in the ASIC data. The most recent June quarter data represents a 119% increase from the September 2021 period as ASX changed its releases to incorporate going concerns entering administration for the first time. A cursory of major manufacturers such as Caltech, CSL and Amcor operating in Australia and with significant overseas footprints are benefiting from a weak currency with Australian dollar trading around US 66.2 cents. This in stark contrast to the FX impact just over a decade ago when the manufacturing sector having to contend with a mining boom fueling the dollar to highs of US $1.20 saw the competitive advantage that smaller manufacturer exports had historically enjoyed eroded. The hawkish posturing of the US Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell may have provided a more accommodating foreign exchange rate, but has not been able to ameliorate the rise in insolvencies around Australia's industrial base, no doubt a cause for concern for policymakers in Canberra. Nationwide, New South Wales recorded 28 companies in mentoring administration and 22 businesses in Victoria, a 100% increase on the same period 12 months earlier. In Queensland, 25 manufacturing businesses appointed administrators, while Western Australia recorded eight. In the West, favourable business conditions, notably an iron ore price hovering at US $100.10 a tonne, provided a positive headline, but demand for workers remains a challenge. Prior to the temporary insolvency protection rules implemented by the former Morrison government, the September quarter, typically a busy one for the administrators, is set to reveal which businesses lived to the end of the financial year and could not get up again for another 12 months. While former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg was a noted fan of US-style Chapter 11 bankruptcies in adopting debt restructuring for the companies, the downside for small operators is the costs associated with such filings. Once the lawyers are involved, it is hard to come back. And consulting firm PwC has decided to repay in full the nearly $1 million it had received to evaluate the RoboDOT scheme in a move welcomed by Government Services Minister Bill Shorten. In 2017, the Department of Human Services hired PwC to examine the scheme and provide recommendations in a final report with an agreed fee of $853,859, excluding GST. But the firm never handed the department its final report, instead providing a PowerPoint presentation PwC Acting Chief Executive Tristan Stubbins said the firm had decided to hand back the fees following the Royal Commission's final report. Following the findings of the Royal Commission review into the RoboDebt Scheme, we do not feel it would be appropriate to retain the $853,859 fee for work carried out for the DHS on the matter, she said in a statement. Government Services Minister Bill Shorten said it was better late than never. Shorten had directed his department to ask PwC for a refund of part or all of the fee to be returned. It is unclear whether the department had contacted PwC before the firm offered to return the money. In the Robodebt Royal Commission final report, Commissioner Catherine Holmes, SC, said the letter of engagement between the department and PwC required the firm to set out key recommendations in a final report. No report was ever delivered and instead a PowerPoint presentation was made to the Minister for Human Services on the 22nd of May 2017, she said. And former top public servant Catherine Campbell went on leave from her $900,000 a year job with the Defence Department last week, a day before the Robodebt Royal Commission made damning findings against her. There are now doubts within defence over whether Campbell, who now advises the government on the AUKUS project, returned from leave after the Royal Commission made a range of scathing findings including that she repeatedly failed to act where the scheme's flaws and illegality became apparent. Bill Shorten said he didn't want to comment on specific individuals in the public service as that would be dealt with by other jurisdictions and other people but Shorten said he understood the general sense of the anger from robodebt victims. They feel that people have got away with it, he said. I just want to assure them that they haven't got away with it. Senior defence sources confirmed that Campbell was on leave from a roller with defence on Thursday and Friday as the damning findings were handed down by Royal Commissioner Catherine Holmes, S.C. Campbell served as Secretary of the Department of Human Services between 2011 and 2017, the period in which the illegal income averaging scheme was introduced. The Royal Commission found that Campbell kept the true nature of the averaging scheme secret when advising Cabinet because he knew then Social Services Minister Morrison wanted to pursue the program. It also found Campbell deliberately instructed her own legal team to discontinue a request for legal advice on the scheme, and that she shelved a damning $1 million audit by PwC into the welfare crackdown, just as it was about to finish because she feared its contents would be damaging. Multiple senior members of the Albanese government and the public service, who were not authorised to speak publicly, said they believed Campbell would have to resign from a role with the fence or would eventually be forced out. At the law firm that led the 1.8 dollars million robo-debt class action is potentially weeks away from launching a new case against former coalition ministers and senior public servants, with lawyers arguing victims who suffered really egregious harm have not received proper justice. Gordon legal partner Peter Gordon said he was considering filing action under the thought of misfeasance in public office and was exploring other torts in order to claim damages for victims who experience indirect financial losses and pain, suffering and distress. Mrs Gordon likened Robodebt to Australia's Watergate. It has exposed systemic dishonesty right throughout the highest levels of government that was ongoing for years, he told Radio 3AW. I hope that the government will now do the right thing by the citizens, as it has so far done consistently since it's won office. Royal Commissioner Catherine Holmes has seen scathing report published on Friday found elements of the tort of misfeasance in public office appear to exist, which has been seized on by Government Services Minister Bill Shorten. Gordon Legal has written to Anthony Albanese and Attorney General Mark Dreyfus and Mr Shorten, inviting them to discuss the potential legal action, which Mr Gordon said could be weeks or months away. Mr Gordon said lead applicants in the original class action were among those who had approached Gordon Legal to investigate whether other legal rights might be available to them. While Gordon Glegel would not name the possible defendants in a future case, Scott Morrison, Alan Targe, Christian Porter, Stuart Robert, the former Department of Human Services Secretary Catherine Campbell were among those most criticised by the Royal Commission. and former Public Service Chief Stephen Sedgwick will lead a task force investigating whether current and former federal bureaucrats referred to by the RoboDebt Royal Commission would be sanctioned. The the Australian Public Service Commission reviewer, the Commission's final report, is part of a four-pronged plan to bring to account politicians and federal public servants who the Royal Commission referred for possible civil and criminal prosecution. Mrs Sedgwick, who was Finance Secretary in the 1990s, has been appointed as a special independent reviewer who will lead a task force to respond to the Royal Commission's referrals. Public servants chiefs. Prime Minister and Cabinet Secretary Clint Davis and Public Service Commissioner Gordon de Brouwer in a joint email to 170,000 federal public servants addressed the widespread sector shock at the Syrian Commission findings. They said a task force led by the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, the Attorney-General's Department and the Australian Public Service Commission will be established to support ministers in preparing the government's response. The leaders advised of, of Mr Sedgwick's appointment. They said he would make inquiries and determinations about whether an individual referred for inquiry has breached the APS Code of Conduct. Both Professor Davis and Dr. De Brower helped co-author the highly influential 2019-30 Public Sector Reform Report. It identified the same lack of citizen and community understanding and digital and data immaturity the Robo de- report exposed. And a partner at accounting firm PwC shared confidential information with others at the firm about a 2015 government requirement for multinationals to disclose key tax details while discussing with them how to influence the tax office to gain benefits for PwC's clients. The unnamed partner spoke to a senior tax officer in July 2015 on a confidential basis and and minutes later emailed details of the conversation to all PwC's Australian tax partners and tax directors. The partner described it as an opportunity to feed in suggestions to the ATO officer which may help influence definitional interpretation aspects and or free or defer certain clients from some or all of the new measures. Most off the record, so please be discreet, the partners of the tax officer's briefing. This exchange, part of the the 144 pages of internal PwC emails that were released by the Senate last month related to the government's plan to introduce country-by-country reporting laws as part of a global initiative led by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development against multinational tax avoidance. It shows that another partner of PwC had breached confidentiality at the same time. The firm's former head of international tax, Peter Collins, was leaking Treasury documents. PwC has continually insisted that Mr Collins was the only one to bridge confidentiality in sharing government plans about new tax laws. But in this exchange, Mr Collins was a recipient of the emails, not a sender. Last month, the Albanese government wound back its plans to build on the 2015 country-by-country reporting laws by making disclosures publicly available after strong opposition from industry, the OECD and the big four accounting firms, including PwC. In addition to the exchange country-by-country reporting in 2015, the internal emails released by the Senate suggest a PwC partner forwarded a copy of a confidential OECD briefing document in 2014 to other partners in the UK and the US, warning that it was confidential and would embarrass PwC Australia if it was released outside the firm. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Anita Wingrove, the Managing Director of Leading, Research and Leadership Advisory Firm, Russell Reynolds Associates, about how boards can get a new breed of leaders. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery about why China's recovery is sputtering. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at LeonGetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
3: Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues